0: Welcome to the Business for Good podcast, a show where we spotlight companies making money by making the world a better place. I'm your host, Paul Shapiro, and if you share a passion for using commerce to solve many of the world's most pressing problems, then this is the show for you. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 89 of the Business for Good podcast. I hope you got a lot out of the last episode about family planning in Nigeria. And as promised, we are soon going to release an episode on family planning in the United States too. So get ready. Not to ruin the surprise, but we will even be talking with a doctor who, get this, vasectomized himself. Yep, you heard that right. This dude is such an evangelical for showing how simple and easy vasectomies are to get that he performed his own. So, stay tuned for episode number 90. By the way, here's my favorite joke that I've heard since the last episode. Why don't zombies eat brains with their fingers? Because they save their fingers for last, of course. Okay, for episode 89 here, we have got a riveting conversation with a member of Congress who thinks that fostering an alternative protein industry in the United States is important both for helping the environment and for protecting American national security. We are already importing much of our clean energy technology from Asia, but will we soon be importing our clean protein from other parts of the world too? Congressman Roe Khanna, a Democrat from California representing Silicon Valley, does not want that to happen. He has not only called on the U.S. Department of Agriculture to invest in alt-protein, he's recently introduced a bill in Congress calling on the Director of National Intelligence to submit an intelligence report on the effects of increased production and consumption of alternative proteins on American national security. The bill even calls for the DNI to explore whether and to what extent progress in the production and consumption of alt-proteins made by foreign countries like China constitutes a competitive threat to American economic interests. And we have got Congressman Kanna right here on the Business for Good podcast to talk all about this, along with other matters of entrepreneurial interest. For background, Kanna was actually a Stanford economics lecturer before becoming a member of Congress in 2017. He is a progressive who co-chaired Bernie Sanders. 2020 presidential campaign, but he's viewed as a pragmatist who routinely works with Republicans, whether penning joint op-eds with Senator Rand Paul or routinely going on the most conservative talk shows on the right. Some experts even think that Kana could appeal both to the left and to some Trump supporters. In fact, despite only joining Congress five years ago, Kana is regularly discussed both as a potential successor to Senator Dianne Feinstein if she chooses not to run for re-election in 2024, and even as a serious contender for the Democratic presidential nomination if Joe Biden decides not to run for re-election in 2024. Politico has devoted a number of stories to the congressman, including one entitled The California Congressman Who Could Become President of the United States, and another about all of the members of the Bernie Sanders camp who are urging Roe Kana to run in 2024 if Biden elects not to run himself. Will Representative Kana one day be Senator Kana or even President Kana? Only time will tell. But for now, he is waging an effort to get alt-protein on the national security radar. I'll now let Representative Ro Kana tell you all about that himself. Congressman Kana, welcome to the Business for Good podcast.
1: Thank you for having me
0: on. Yeah, it's really great to be talking with you. I am intrigued because not only are you the congressman representing Silicon Valley, um, but you are an economist by your profession prior to being in Congress, in fact, an economics professor, and you refer to yourself as a progressive capitalist. So, Congressman, what does that mean? What's a progressive capitalist? In, In a world where so many folks view that C word as like this dirty word, what is it that you mean by a progressive capitalist?
1: Well, just to make sure the record is clear, I was a lecturer, not a professor. I don't want to give myself a, a promotion.
0: <laughs> okay, you were you, you are a a professor of economics. I don't know if that makes you an economist, but I get it. All right, thank you.
1: A lecturer in economics, I was a professor implies tenure, which which most people won't care about, but in uh, the academy they take that stuff really seriously. <laughs> so I want to okay, make sure I'm not uh, engaged in title inflation. I, so I, I,
0: I will I will retract the inflation I, here. Uh, but uh, anyway, so tell us. Pro- progressive capitalist, I mean, what, what does that mean?
1: A progressive capitalist, as I see it, it means someone who believes in innovation, someone who believes in entrepreneurship, someone who believes that markets are good because they foster creativity and production and uh, I- human ingenuity, uh, but that we want to make sure everyone has a, a, a shot at uh, success. And that means having healthcare for everyone, education for everyone, uh, a livable wage for everyone, uh, being able to Have a home if you are uh, working. Uh, And so we need a capitalism that actually means that everyone participates and succeeds.
0: And so how does that differ from what other people might think of as just regular old capitalism then?
1: Well, the regular old capitalism, as we've been practicing it over the last 40 years, has had all this wealth pile up in my district, $11 trillion of market cap. Uh, has had jobs massively offshore, millions and millions of them, to China and Mexico, communities destroyed. The state basically stood by as as people's means of living was taken from them. It has allowed for young people to go into debt, thousands of dollars, totally in contradiction to the Morrill Act that was supposed to provide free education uh, with the land-grant universities back in 1862, and it was free for almost 100 years in this country. Uh, it has meant uh, a state that has watched as healthcare costs has re- have risen to 23 percent of GDP and families are facing a crushing tax from private health insurance of almost $12,000 a year. So it has basically meant a uh, market system that has had no state intervention, that has had no concern for jobs, no concern for health care costs, no, very little concern for education costs, and has left... Uh, I would argue the majority of Americans out.
0: So it's interesting that you know you you describe the trillions of dollars that have been amassed in the district that you represent as somehow of a problem because most of the time you know a congressperson is not going to complain that their their own district uh, residents are becoming too wealthy, and you have really developed congressman a national platform in a very short amount of time. Uh, you've you've been in Congress uh, for only about five years or so, and you already were the co-chair of the Bernie Sanders campaign. You've been on a, a very high pro. Profile journey here, including even having Politico saying that they think that you are, if Biden doesn't run or if, if for president or maybe if Feinstein doesn't run for Senate in 2024, that they think that you would be a, a natural uh, progressive candidate for uh, either statewide or even national office here. So obviously, I know that you are focused on serving your own district and being a, a member of the House of Representatives. But as you continue to build a national profile here, what is it that you're trying to accomplish? Like, what is the main reason? That you are in DC working on public policy issues.
1: I want the reindustrialization of America. I want us to be creating good-paying jobs, developing here again, innovating, making things, leading, not letting China lead. Uh, I fear that we've had too much production go offshore. I fear that so many communities have been de- destroyed with deindustrialization and the modern economy and the jobs of technology and the 25 million digital jobs aren't available to many young people or, or folks uh, in those communities. We need to create uh, both production across America again. We need to bring the opportunities for the digital economy to rural America and places left out. That doesn't mean it's a zero-sum game. My district has had an increase in 40% of net worth. Uh, over the last two years, it makes sense with everyone going online and technology. You've had the increasing digitization of the economy. I'm very bullish on my district in the next next 20 years, as you have even more digitization. What I want to make sure though is that the opportunities aren't uh, aren't uh, limited to a few geographies, and that there's really a mission, a call uh, to reindustrialize America and to produce. New value in
0: this country. So let's talk about something specific then uh, on this. So you mentioned we don't want to lose out to China. Well, if you think about our solar panels, our lithium-ion batteries, like uh, those are often coming from Asia now, and it's hard for us to catch up in the clean energy race. And that is the direct result of Chinese of the Chinese government prioritizing the exploration and innovation in clean energy, whereas the U.S. government ha- seems to have been more focused on subsidizing fossil fuels than on advancing. Queen energy for some time now. You've introduced a new bill in Congress that would try to avoid the same thing happening, not in the energy space, but in the queen protein space. And I want to talk about that. It's called the security of the economy, climate, and other US interests with recent and existing (laughs) food alternatives, or the easier to say the secure food act. And this bill would require the director of national intelligence basically to submit a report on the effects of increased protein uh, production and consumption uh, from the alternative protein, meaning animal-free protein, and that impacts and how it impacts national security in the United States, the report would address plant-based and cultivated meats' impact on food security, water supplies, climate impacts, public health, the ag sector, and more. Uh, and you also are looking for a detailed explanation uh, from the DNI about what progress the production of alternative proteins made by foreign countries like China constitutes a competitive threat to America's national interest. So, you know, oftentimes we hear about animal-free protein technology as being very good for climate, very good for other environmental purposes or even public health, but you hear less about it as a national security issue. So, why is it that your bill isn't asking the Department of Agriculture or the Food and Drug Administration, but rather the actual the National Director of Intelligence to look into this issue?
1: Appreciate it. Well, we want to make sure we're leading in alternative proteins. All alternative proteins means is that uh, in developing new uh, food that there are now uh, synthetic uh, ways of doing it that are both good for the climate uh, and it's good for nutrition uh, and good for jobs, job creation. And it doesn't displace in any way the, fa- the family farmer because family farmer is making very uh, cultivated types of meats. And that is not something currently that you can do through the alternate protein Uh, process. Uh, Really, alternative proteins for mass production, what a lot of these companies do to make a a, a beef uh, burger, for example, as opposed to a ribeye steak. And the question is, how do we do that uh, in a way that is uh, creating food security? How do we do that uh, in a way that is uh, nutritious? How do we do that in a way that is going to create jobs in the United States?
0: Sure. So let's talk about the national security implications of this. So as I mentioned, China is leading in things like solar panels, lithium ion batteries, and so on. Xi Jinping just put out a new plan for China's agricultural vision for the next five years, which relies heavily on animal-free protein technologies. Here in the United States, however, uh, we seem to be uh, not really uh, taking a leadership role. Private industry is especially funded by uh, investors who live in your district. Um, But- It doesn't seem like the US government has done that much on this. So, places like the Netherlands, they're spending uh, billions of euros to uh, help farmers to raise fewer animals for environmental purposes. They are putting tens of millions of euros into um, consortiums for studying cultivated animal meat, so growing real meat without animals. Um, China is doing this as well. And in the US, there's only been a real pittance of grants here. You see, for example, USDA and the National Science. Science Foundation giving single digit millions to uh, universities like UC Davis and Tufts. Um, but you don't see a, a, a real strong embrace here. So I realize that your bill is not asking for any appropriated funds for these purposes, that you're asking the, the DNI to explore what this means for national security. But what do, you think, what do you think it'll take to have agricultural research dollars going into animal-free protein research here in the United States?
1: I think it's doable, and the reason it's doable is because this could actually uh, be a new opportunity for a lot of uh, farmers. I mean farmers could be uh, growing uh, things that then ultimately lead to uh, new food production. I mean the uh, the the material that we're going to need uh, for uh, alternative proteins could be grown and provided uh, by farmers. So uh, it, it, we have to make sure that this program is seen as a positive for farmers. Uh, And then uh, it could uh, definitely get funding uh, if it's seen as good for job creation, good for farmers, good for uh, nutrition, uh, good for food security. Uh, it seems an appropriate place for agriculture to, to support it.
0: So farmers will definitely be growing the crops that are fed into this system, right? So if you buy a Beyond Burger today, you're still buying uh, farmed products, right? They're they're coming from peas or uh, Impossible Foods uses soybeans as their basis. So, you know, these are still farmed products, whether peas or soy. And even in cultivated meat, you still are feeding your cells farmed products. They're still agricultural products, but there probably would be some disruptions location in the supply chain, right? Like if people were to switch to more plant-based options or in the future to cultivated meat, it would mean that, you know, we would have fewer people slaughtering animals as an example. And so just in the same way that, you know, Netflix creates a lot of jobs, but at the expense of blockbuster video jobs or digital film creates lots of jobs, but at the expense of Kodak's jobs, uh, what is your view on how we can help uh, those who are today involved in the raising and slaughtering of animals who might be dislocated? Uh, from these types of technologies in the same way that Kodak's uh, failure to embrace digital film or or Blockbuster's failure to go to DVD mail-in and then eventually to streaming. Uh, what do you think we can do to help those to transition to 21st century jobs that don't involve the raising and slaughtering of animals?
1: Well, I don't think there is going to be dislocation anytime soon. I think this idea that they're going to replace ranchers or replace farmers is just wrong because so much of that meat is uh, meat that is uh, cultivated and, and and is not just a uh, uh, mass uh, mass produced, and also there's a huge global market that is that is there, so uh, it, it's not going to cut into uh, to the U.S. market. So I, I really think that we ought to be focused on how this is uh, supporting uh, the uh, the the agricultural community and how it can be a win for farmers and ranchers. Uh, and support the the research in ways that uh, can be additive. Uh, I view this as a very different thing than uh, the situation with fossil fuels, where Mm -hmm. you actually do have a transition and you have to move off of coal. Here, I, I think that there's no one is talking about disrupting, in my view, the the rancher
0: or the or the family farmer. Sure. So there's definitely a distinction that people make between like factory farms, of course, which you're referring to as these like mass industrialized uh, farms where you have oftentimes millions of animals confined in very small spaces and uh, ranchers and other folks who raise animals in ways that would be more recognizable to most Americans as farming. So are you suggesting that you think neither one of these would be competing with the animal free proteins or only that the, uh that the uh, more extensive family farms would be not competing here
1: well, the more extensive family farms would not be competing to mm-hmm. the extent that the kfos i mean i think we ought to have a moratorium on kfos anyway mm-hmm. given the uh climate disasters given the runoff environmentally given how much they're hurting communities so to the extent that they're uh in some ways allowing CAFOs to be reformed I think that's a good thing mm-hmm. it's a good thing for the family farms it's a good thing for these states where kfos have huge uh, uh, environmental consequences. Right. Uh, I I think though that the industry is still in such an infant stage. The idea that they're going to be even competing against CAFOs is so far off. Now, maybe there'll be some transformation. I think right now the point is how do we, research this so that this industry is something in the United States.
0: Yes. Yeah, for sure. I know, uh, you know, countries like Israel and Singapore are really racing fast. Uh, we already mentioned China, but they're really racing fast to try to bring about their uh, plant-based and their uh, other types of animal-free protein industries. Um, here in the U.S., though, the aspiration of those in these industries is to compete against CAFAs. So, if you look at, for example, Impossible Foods, you know, their their goal is to, you know, end CAFOs basically, not just a more but to really end CAFAs, and they point out that uh, raising animals in these uh, factory farms represents uh, about 14% of all greenhouse gas emissions globally, according to the United Nations, which is more than all of the planes, trains, and boats and other forms of transportation combined. And so it's also raising animals for food is the number one cause of deforestation in the world. Uh, the Washington Post just had a really excellent A1 story on this about how the destruction of the Amazon rainforest is happening primarily to produce beef, that this is a, a the number one cause of deforestation in the Amazon is beef production and how the answer to this could be that you know maybe people will eat less beef, but it could also be that people will just enjoy more plant based beef. And so, uh, certainly, so far there doesn't seem to have been much cannibalization from the plant based side into the CAFO side. But do you think it's possible that in the next five or ten years that, that might actually start to happen that we would have fewer kefos and more plant based production right here in the United States?
1: The um, I think that. Um... Absolutely. Uh, we could see plant-based production that helps put pressure on CAFOs, and that would be a good thing. Uh, that is one of the promises of uh, alternate proteins, uh, that both it will provide a secure food supply, that it would uh, uh, create a, a, a taste, uh, of course, in, cult- in certain uh, proteins that are uh, based that are exactly the same chemical compound as, uh, as the meat itself. Uh, that it would taste the same, uh, and that it would uh, be good for the climate because you're not going to have these KFOs producing all of this uh, e- emission mm-hmm. and also all of the environmental consequences. So that is a, a promising uh, uh, reform that uh, uh, the industry could bring.
0: Yeah, so, um, you, so first let me ask you, do you eat these products? Do you enjoy plant-based meats, or do you, have you ever had them?
1: You know, I've had them. Uh, I wouldn't say that I'm a regular in eating them in any way, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I have had them.
0: Okay, cool. Uh, so you know, look, Congressman, you are uh, somebody who isn't afraid to you know cross the aisle. You have authored op-eds with Republicans like Rand Paul. You regularly go on Fox and other conservative shows, despite being a progressive Democrat yourself. So uh, let me ask you: Why do you think more Republicans and other free marketers? don't appear to be as enthusiastic, at least today, on this as a potential climate solution. So if you look at the, you know, they don't want to have, let's say, a carbon tax, uh, but if we could have uh, private market innovation to create uh, alternatives that people really want to eat, that are economic, and that could be better for the planet than kfo based meat and other animal products. Why is it that we don't see more on the right embracing this type of food tech innovation as a potential solution, either to climate or even just for national security purposes, like your new bill is uh, is suggesting?
1: It's new, uh, and it, it it's concerning to people who don't understand it. I'm sure there's some concern, is it going to really hurt uh, uh, family farmers, which it won't. Uh, what does this mean in terms of the quality of the, of the type of meat? Is it going to hurt a traditional industry? So those are all reasons that people are for the status quo. It's always easy to default to the status quo. Change is always hard. But I think when people study this and they see that uh, this is actually going to empower farmers, this is actually going to uh, create jobs, uh, this is actually going to make America more competitive. Then uh, they, they will be open to this and the extraordinary uh, climate uh, impact.
0: Are there any Republicans who you think of who uh, who you can think of right now by name who you think would be particularly interested in supporting your new legislation in the House?
1: You know, not by name, uh, but we're going to try to circulate it and, and see if we can get some of the, the folks who about climate. There are several Republicans in the climate caucus mm-hmm. uh, to, to sign up.
0: Do you think there's an opportunity for this instead of just getting a, a freestanding vote on the House floor just to be attached to some other vehicle that might be moving uh, anyway?
1: I think we still have a lot of work to do. I think we have to build up co-sponsors. We have to get more Republicans. We have to build a, a coalition to support this. And the work is just beginning. So I wouldn't Uh, say that this is going to move anytime soon. I don't want to be misleading, but it's a marker that can then uh, build support and the administration can look at it to do some of these things uh, on their own.
0: Mm -hmm. Sure. Okay. Uh, Well, speaking of things that take a long time and that need a lot of work, I do want to just point out, You know, you first ran for Congress back in 2014 unsuccessfully. You came close, uh, but you lost. And there was something in you that said, you know, I'm just going to get back up and try again. And there's a lot of people who fit this same description. For example, the first time President Obama ran for Congress, he lost also. And, you know, there's sometimes when people just become resilient and they get back up after they failed and they decide to get back in the ring and keep moving. So, what was it for you? Like after losing, you know, it's a very public failure to lose a, a public race for Congress that made you think, you know, I'm going to go back and do this again, the following session, the following cycle in 2016, when you finally won.
1: Well, you know, I lost twice. I ran the first time as protest campaign against the Iraq war and got maybe 19% of the vote. Mm, what, uh, that what? was something I'm so proud of for standing up in 2003 against the war in Iraq against the Patriot Act. And I didn't run it then for 10 years. I, I really... Uh, was proud of standing up for those principles, uh, but then was serving and doing things in many other capacities. Then 10 years later, I said, okay, let me give this a try uh, because there was a seat in Silicon Valley, the heart of technology. And I said, technology is going to change the world. We need someone from this area who understands it and can understand those who have been left out and figure out how we bridge the divide. I ran against a good man, Mike Conde. He's a decent person. He had good values, but he just was not really in touch with the changing nature of technology and uh, understanding all of that Silicon Valley represents. And I lost my first race, 52 to 48. I probably didn't have sufficient at the time, uh, deep roots in the community the way my Conda did. It forced me to really go very deep in the community, knock on thousands of doors, meet people at uh, farmers markets, uh, meet with coffees with PTA leaders and parents. Uh, It made me a better member of Congress. So, uh, I often think that uh, uh, loss is uh, instructive, though. It, it's easy to say say that, uh, yeah. the hindsight. <laughs> that in the moment. Uh,
0: yeah, but, so a, you say that it made you a better member of Congress. I presume if you could go back and, and do it over, though, you would not choose the same order that you would choose to win the first time.
1: You know, actually, no, because I, I genuinely think had I gotten into Congress in 2014, mm-hmm. I'm not sure I would have been... Uh, is similar as aware of the economic hardships of those who have been left out of the anger of the frustration uh, that exists. And I may have been too uh, much a techno optimist, though I still retain that. Uh, but you know, obviously, I, I would have uh, it's easy to say if you if you know you're going to win in 2016, it would have been the better path. The problem is, if I hadn't won in 16, I probably would have been the end of uh, any political ambition. So I'm not sure I would roll the dice on a run like that. <laughs> uh, right. But you know, I do think I'm a significantly better public servant having gotten to Congress in 16
0: then 40. yeah you know it's interesting you look at uh, so many people who have failed and gotten back up I, I mentioned that Obama lost his first race for Congress obviously uh, Abraham Lincoln lost in 1858 when he ran for Senate uh, against Stephen Douglas uh, even Bill Clinton lost one of his statewide races in Arkansas um, prior to uh, ultimately of course becoming president and there do seem to be some lessons here for entrepreneurs so a lot of times entrepreneurs uh, start businesses and fail or their businesses struggle and so If you had a piece of advice for people who are thinking about starting a company to try to do something good in the world uh, and you're looking at the vast expertise that you have about Silicon Valley funded startups, what advice would you offer to people thinking about starting their own company to try to solve some climate or environmental or maybe some other social issue that they want to solve with technology? Well,
1: I think it'd be very presumptuous for me to offer uh, advice to a uh, a, a business entrepreneur. Given a lot of my uh, work has been in politics and public policy, but I would say one of my favorite quotes is Nelson Mandela's that it always seems impossible until it is done. And the point is that I think sometimes the people who are the most destructive are people often the closest to us who may doubt or not believe what we're capable of doing, and they don't mean it with bad intention. It's just so ingrained. Ingrained in their own uh, system and frame of reference. And so I would say you have to have a healthy balance uh, by tuning out a lot of people who are naysayers, or you just won't have the strength uh, and vision to continue and be resilient, while uh, having enough people on there to remind most of us that we couldn't play in the NBA, uh, and so to keep our uh, dreams tethered to some sense of reality. And that balance between Having sufficient skeptics, but not having too many naysayers, I think are, is an art, not a science, but is critical for anyone who's trying to do something unconventional.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Nice. And then uh, on the flip side of that, let's say you were talking to somebody who is thinking about starting an alternative protein company, and they're being wooed right now by China, by Israel, by Singapore, and they're thinking about starting it in the United States. What message would you have to them? Why should that? Entrepreneur think about starting an alternative protein company here in the U.S. rather than any of these other countries that are seeking to get them to start over there.
1: We're still the best place to invest. We're still the best place to engage in science. I mean, not to be facetious, but I mean, G.G. Pink could wake up tomorrow and do to you what he did to Jack Ma—just uh, cut your company in half, take over half your company, tell you not to appear. Uh, I don't know many people in the United States or around the world we're clamoring to get into China. I do know a lot of people around the world who still want to come to the United States. There's a reason for that. We're still the freest place in terms of innovation and entrepreneurship. We still have some of the greatest science and technology research. We have the greatest entrepreneurial ecosystem I would argue ever known to humankind. Are they problems with our democracy? Of course. Are they problems of, uh, inclusion? Of course. Uh, but, uh, uh, I don't, I don't think it's a wise bet to go somewhere else.
0: Okay. And you, Congressman referred to yourself as a techno optimist. And I, I, I certainly put myself in that camp as well. Are there any, uh, are there any business ideas out there that you wish that somebody would solve something, let's say, on environment or anything else that nobody yet has has cracked that nut that you think maybe somebody's listening to this podcast, and they're thinking about what type of problem they want to solve with some new technological innovation? What do you hope that they solve?
1: You know, there's so many out there. I'm just amazed by all the entrepreneurship and climate. I was talking to someone a few days ago who has a company that is taking uh, some of the uh, biomass that falls from from plants when they decay and making sure the carbon of that will be put in the ground and not uh, go back up uh, out in the air. I've uh, seen uh, companies that are tackling fusion and making progress on it. I've seen companies that are uh, tackling making clean steel, making uh, clean batteries, making thicker steel for offshore wind. Uh, Companies that are, of course, in the alternative protein space that are uh, figuring out how to uh, do more of the solar manufacturing at scale and uh, at at cost, uh, lowering battery costs and making batteries last longer, making batteries cleaner. Uh, When you look at who's really leading on climate, it's certainly not the politicians. It's the uh, scientists and technologists and entrepreneurs. And that to me is a, a cause of great optimism.
0: Sure. I appreciate that. So finally then, Congressman, before we adjourn, you have been on a wild ride. You've done a lot. You've run for office many times. You may run for office many more times in the future. Uh, For people who look at your story and they admire your resilience, they admire that you got back up off, off the ground when you fell and you kept going forward. Have there been any resources that have been useful for you that you would recommend, whether books or speeches or anything else that you would suggest for somebody who wants to make a positive difference in the world that you think, hey, this was good for me, check, it out too.
1: I would say have an inner circle of believers, who, people who will be there for you when you fail, people who would be there for you when you uh, are down. For me, it's been my brother, my wife, my mother, my, some of my close friends. Uh, and it's so important because there are very few people, maybe there are some, who, who don't doubt themselves, who don't uh, give up. Uh, and really, it's a group of people around you, their support system that keeps someone going. And so for me, I think more important than the experts or, uh, it, or anything else is to have people really who can sustain you uh, through the tough times in life. And that's probably, prob- probably applicable, not just in uh, political ambition or business ambition, but probably the difficulty that life itself deals.
0: Indeed. Well, wise words to bring us out here. Congressman Brokhana, thanks so much for your time. Good luck with everything. And uh, I hope that your new bill, the Secure Food Act, is going to uh, become law. And we'll see a report from the Director of National Intelligence on how animal free proteins can help secure our country's future in a better way. So appreciate all that you're doing. And uh, we'll be rooting for your continued success.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. A great honor and pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening. We hope you found use in this episode. If so, don't keep it to yourself. Please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. And as always, we hope you will be in the business
1: of doing good.